0: you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter number one. We will begin this morning an extended series of messages from this great and insightful book. So even in the announcing of a series of sermons in the book of Revelation, that can create a spectrum of responses. There can be those who are greatly excited about a series in the book of revelation and even within that there can be a spectrum there can be healthy excitement that seeks to know and understand the word of God more there can be the kind of excitement that doesn't thrill me so much the kind of excitement that wishes to find signs in the skies and the heavens and the stars indicators of what the days hold for us down to the iota excitement to be able to read The daily news headlines in a way that bears some insight into the mind of God or the counsels of heaven for the unfolding of human history. If that is your goal in coming to the book of Revelation, you will likely be sorely disappointed with this series of sermons. But if your enthusiasm is to know the word of God more and to find nourishment of soul, encouragement, to hold you fast, to sustain a faithful witness to the lordship of Jesus over time you'll find precisely what you're looking for here in the book. Some are greatly excited. Others will be more like me in the early days of my walk with Jesus. I I can remember, you know, when when you come to faith and you don't know anything about the Bible or have any previous Christian experience or exposure, you just want to know all that you can know about the Bible. I would pursue sermons on the book of Revelation, and I would sit and I would hear the preacher And I would read the passage and I would hear the preacher and read the passage. And I'm thinking, I could have never gotten what he got from this passage. And so in frustration, the conclusion that I reached was that there must be something wrong with me. What I learned over the course of time is that the deficiency was not mine. In fact, I'm going to contend over the next several weeks that every blood-bought believer on the face of the planet has apart from theological education or seminary training, all of the resources you need by the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit to understand clearly and to apply well the teaching of this, yes, somewhat mysterious, but very straightforward book intended to be of encouragement and nourishment of soul to those who are hurting, suffering, struggling along the way. It's often... ...thought that Revelation is exclusively about understanding times and seasons in the sense that that engenders in us. Revelation is prophetic. But I want you to understand at the outset that this book is not about what the future holds in detail. The book is, at risk of sounding somewhat cliche, about who holds the future. And his name is Jesus in fact the revelation is not of the future the revelation is of jesus christ we find this even in verse one of our passage the book itself bears a structure there's a literary structure about revelation that points us down to this central verse in other words there's a single verse in the book of revelation that is the summary statement for the whole book. And this is not just the pastor picked a verse that summarizes what he wants to say. The book itself attests to, we could sit down and with pencil and paper in hand, I could demonstrate exegetically how John is pointing to Revelation chapter 11 and verse number 15 as the centerpiece of the book itself. This is what that verse says. The seventh angel blew his trumpet And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is the message of revelation. This is the theological message that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and his son, Jesus Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Now every book in the Bible, Revelation and the other 65, have each book has its own theological message and then a practical application that stands alongside that theological message. This is the theological message in chapter 15 or verse 15 of chapter 11 rather. But the practical message that stands alongside the theological message is that you and I but first, the churches of Asia Minor would persevere in the faith that we would be faithful witnesses to the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord even when there's great opposition. The great invitation, the strong invitation of revelation is that believers in Jesus would continue believing the message of the gospel and in doing so find strength of constitution, cementing their spines, Standing firm and insisting, even in the face of persecution and the prospect of death, that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. Revelation 1, beginning in verse number 1. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. John, the beloved disciple, the friend of Jesus, the apostle we know from the gospel of John, Writing under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit records, beginning in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that God gave him to show his slaves what must quickly take place. He sent it and signified it through his angel to his slave John, who testified to God's word and to the testimony about Jesus Christ in all he saw. The one who reads this is blessed and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it are blessed because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming. From the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loved us, and has set us free from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom priest to his God and father. The glory and dominion are his forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him and all the families of the earth will mourn over him. This is certain. Amen. I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, who is coming. The almighty may the lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word you may be seated the book of revelation begins with just those words the revelation a little greek term behind revelation here is the greek term apocalypsis it's the word from which we get the term apocalypse or apocalyptic as in apocalyptic genre One of the things that creates challenges for us in reading the book of Revelation is that we don't have contemporary parallels in terms of this kind of literature. We know how to read history. Much of the Bible is comprised of of history. We read history books in elementary school, and even to some extent what we read in the paper from day to day takes the form of history. We know how to read history. We understand its conventions. We know how to read narrative. We grow up reading narrative. The earliest works we're introduced to are narrative works. My favorite books as a boy were narrative books that told a story, and probably the same is true for you. We have science fiction in our culture. We know how to read sports. We know how to read politics. We know how to read opinion versus journalistic fact pieces. But we don't have contemporary parallels to apocalyptic literature. One of the things we're going to do over the next several weeks is sort of learn the conventions of reading apocalyptic. And once you do, what seems so complicated becomes so much simpler here in the book of Revelation. One of the things that apocalyptic does is to communicate a message in signs and symbols. In fact, I contend that Revelation is not introducing a tremendous amount of new information. That's the way many regard the book of Revelation, as though there is in this last book of the Bible this great last-ditch information dump. All of the things about the end times are dumped into the book of Revelation, but that's not how the book functions at all. In fact, I would argue that what John says in the gospel with words, John, the writer of the gospel of John, is saying with words in John's gospel What he will now turn to say with symbols and images in the book of Revelation. And the function that apocalyptic often carries is that it communicates a timeless and usually well understood message to people who are suffering. One of the fun things that the reason I love to preach this book, this might be my favorite book of the Bible to preach from or to preach. Because it's just gospel in every paragraph, on every page, in every chapter. The book itself is just the message of the gospel. But because the gospel is cast in these apocalyptic images and symbols, it's such a fresh perspective. I'm able to see in a new way, with a different dynamic here, Jesus on the cross in my place. I'm able to see here from a little different perspective here in the revelation, Jesus risen from the dead, the prototype of those who would be raised from the dead after him, the victory that is assured us in Christ because of what Jesus has done in his absolute perfection, in his substitutionary death and his victory in resurrection. timeless gospel message we have come to know so well in the clear articulated message of the gospel set forth in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is now told only from a slightly different perspective here for us in the book of Revelation. Verse 1 continues, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll move a little faster later in the message. Don't worry. The revelation is not a revelation of the end times. Hear me. The revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Because when you're hurting, when you're suffering under the oppressive hand of a vile, wicked, grossly immoral Roman emperor, what you don't need are details about 2,000 years of future history. What you do need is a glimpse at the glory of Jesus Christ that will sustain you. If you can think back months ago to our series in the book of Hebrews, the practical application of Hebrews was likewise persevere. And the key verse we pointed to in the introduction of that series was found in chapter three, where the author of Hebrews says, consider Jesus. This little two-word imperative, focus your gaze, fix your attention, meditate on Jesus, because what that produces in you is the ability to persevere. It will not necessarily help the Christians of Asia Minor to know that 2,000 years in the future, there may be geopolitical circumstances that contribute to our present plight. But it will help them to look with longing into the sweet face of our Savior Jesus Christ. If you want to persevere, fix your gaze on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Not only is this a tremendous way to begin our journey with Jesus, indeed the only way to begin our journey with Jesus, it is the very thing that holds us fast come what may. Revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his slaves what must quickly take place. He sent it. And signified it or signed it or symbolized it through his angel to his slave, John, who testified to God's word and to the testimony about Jesus Christ in all he saw. The one who reads this is blessed and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it are blessed because the time is near. So there's this five link chain of the communication of this revelation of Jesus God the Father gives it to the Son, the Son gives it to His angel, the angel gives it to John, John in turn gives it to the pastors of the churches of Asia Minor, and in some ways we are standing on the shoulders of generations of messengers who've come before us in giving declaration and exposition to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 3 points out, the one who reads this is blessed, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it are likewise blessed. Please note, write it down in the margin of your Bibles, remember it, commit it to memory, that the book of Revelation is not so much about a call to know something as much as it is a call to do something. Namely, to keep the words of this book, one of Satan's most Effective tactics is this sinister way we have confused a knowledge of the Bible with the practical divine wisdom God would have us to derive from the Bible. There is a system of approaching the book of Revelation that separates chapters 1 through 3 completely from chapters 4 and following. If you're familiar with the basic structure of the book the seven churches of Asia Minor are identified specifically in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and there is a specific portion of the letter addressed to each of those churches individually. Portions in which each church is instructed to do very specific things. And then chapter 4 takes this apocalyptic turn, and that's where the heavy symbolism and imagery in Revelation abides. The reality is that all of the book is written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And all of the book is to function as an encouragement to us, not only in knowing what the word of this book is, but in keeping this word, observing this word in our lives personally. Think for a moment about the writings of the Apostle Paul. Think specifically of the book of Ephesians. You'll know that book or be familiar on some level with the writings of Paul. Paul's letters are typically two-part letters. In Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, you have this dense theological material, concepts of who God is. Paul conceptualizing the work of salvation and helping us to understand how it is that he has saved us by grace. And then in chapters 4 through 6, Paul is drawing practical, everyday application from the dense theological material of chapters 1 through 3. If you remove the theological density of one through three, you don't come to the same conclusions in terms of application. And if you, if you keep the application and you throw the theology out the window, or on the reverse, you keep the theology and throw the application out the window, you're in no better shape than otherwise. These are working in tandem. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is answering the why, and then he's telling us the what in chapters four through six. In John's revelation, he gives us the what in chapters 1 through 3. And then he tells us the why in chapters 4 through 22. He's saying to those seven churches, persevere. Do not lose your first love. Do not bear with the sin of hypocrisy or lukewarmth. Don't put up with these things rather faithfully testify to the truth of the gospel. And then he gives the why in, in chapters four through 22, because Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why. Now there's something else happening in, in these first three verses in verse one. You have the phrase, this must quickly take place. And verse three ends with, because the time is near. Now, what John has done here is to use the language of Daniel's prophecy in an incredibly powerful way. If you're familiar with Daniel, he's the linchpin of Old Testament prophecy. Daniel receives uh, uh, the ability to interpret dreams in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has a dream. In that dream, there are four beasts. And those four beasts symbolize the four major world empires. Daniel is, in the interpretation of that dream, prophesying the fall of Babylon, the rise of the Medes and Persians and their fall, the rise of the Greeks and their fall, as well as the rise and eventually the fall of the Roman Empire. Daniel is actually telling the future in the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But in verse 44 of chapter 2, the chapter alluded to in Revelation 1, 1 through 3, this is what the Bible says. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. After the fall of the Roman Empire, Daniel foretells a time when God establishes an everlasting kingdom with an everlasting king. And with our historical perspective, we can identify him as Jesus Christ. And what John is doing when he says these things must quickly take place, the time is near at the close of verse 3, is almost sarcasm. It's not just that the time is near. It is that the time is here. The time is now. Jesus has established an everlasting kingdom under his everlasting rule. And no man can stop him or stay his hand. It's here. It's now. What Daniel had promised in such clear terminology has now come. This is our time. When John speaks of Jesus coming, he speaks of him not only coming as the Messiah who would bleed and die in our place. I'm talking about the first coming. He's also coming to consummate, to inaugurate the kingdom to which we now belong. The time is now. From the very beginning of the life of Jesus, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. We have a foretaste of what the fullness of that kingdom will look like. And that we have been liberated from all our sins. Surely it is coming in its fullness at the return of Jesus. But we needn't wait for the kingdom. It is now. It is today. John says it is near. And I would add it is even here. Verse 4 John says, to The seven churches in Asia. There are seven literal historical churches that are addressed in the book of Revelation. One, one of the things that I find fascinating about the way some read the book of Revelation is that all of the interpretive abilities we have for other books of the Bible tend to go out the window. We read Revelation the same way we would read Ephesians, bearing in mind that Paul is the author, and the city of Ephesus is the recipient, the church in Ephesus, The same is true of Revelation. John is the author, and the churches of Asia Minor are the recipient. This book had to mean something to its historical audience before it can mean anything to me or to you. That's what Bible interpretation is about. Now, when I hear the sillier things drawn out of Revelation, like the mark of the beast is a vaccine, or the mark of the beast is an iPhone, or the mark of the beast is a social security number or any of the more recent iterations of the mark of the beast or the locust as they're depicted in those apocalyptic passages are Apache and Black Hawk helicopters and we have Russia and China and they're moving around and doing the reason that I know that those are foolish conclusions and have nothing whatsoever to do with the teaching of this book is that those ideas, those concepts, those images never entered the mind of the Apostle John, nor were they of any interest whatsoever to the churches of Asia Minor. What they needed was a word that would sustain their soul as their brothers died as martyrs for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I cannot be convinced, nor will I ever be convinced, that they had any interest whatsoever in the geopolitical situation of the 21st century. The seven literal churches in Asia Minor. Now, seven, the number seven, is symbolic in biblical literature, especially in apocalyptic literature. So the way these churches in Asia Minor are framed here in apocalyptic terminology come to represent all of the churches of Asia Minor. In other words, it's not just First Baptist Philadelphia and First Baptist Ephesus and First Baptist Laodicea. It's all of the churches of those regions. One of the complexities in understanding this is just the way we envision church as an institution in a Western culture. All of the churches are captured by this language of the seven churches in Asia Minor. So, so the number seven's always symbolized fullness from the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world as we know it in six days, and on the seventh day he rests. That seventh day comes to be symbolic of fullness. That seven-day period is fixed as a term of, of a week. It comes to represent fullness, and the same is true here as well. To the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming. Now look down to verse eight, where Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is and who was and who is coming, the Almighty. So this is the prologue of Revelation. This is the introduction of Revelation, verses four through eight. And it's bracketed by the idea that that Jesus is, was, and is coming. Each of those statements about the person of Jesus echoes the language of Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is out on the wilderness and he observes at some distance a bush that is burning and is not consumed. And he says to himself, the Bible says, a very understated verse, I must turn aside and see what this is all about. That's almost verbatim what Moses says in Exodus chapter 3. He approaches the burning bush, and there at the burning bush, God commissions Moses to go and to lead his people Israel out of their Egyptian bondage and into the promised land. Moses, in his reluctance, says, God, when when I go and tell them that you've commissioned me, who who will I tell them sent me? And for the first time in biblical history, God identifies himself beyond the moniker of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, beyond the more generic God or Elohim in the Hebrew Bible. He says, you tell them that I am sent you. The very name itself is mysterious. It speaks to self-existence. God is simply saying, I am who I am, unchangeable in character. From him, all other existence emanates. Creation is born forth from the one who simply is, is not bound by time, beginning nor end. He simply is. That I am language is echoed in these descriptions. He is, he was, and he is coming. And then is repeated again in verse number eight. What's happening in our passage is is really, there, there are layers here. One, John is identifying Jesus Christ, the everlasting King of an everlasting kingdom with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the great I am of Exodus chapter 3 and finds no controversy in such comparisons or identifications. Indeed, Jesus has been given the name which is above every name that on the last day every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But there's something even deeper than that. He's appealing, as he does consistently in Revelation, to these passages from the Old Testament that precede deliverance. What happens after Moses meets God at the burning bush? This disclosure that he is the I Am. God brings his people out of Egyptian bondage. So John takes a verse by the inspiration of the Spirit. John takes a verse from an Old Testament context in which people are suffering, are being killed, are being oppressed under the hand of a wicked and grossly immoral ruler in Pharaoh, doubles its application for those who are now suffering and being killed and being troubled by a grossly immoral Roman emperor. It is a reminder of God's history of deliverance. That God is in the business of delivering his people and his business is good. He does it again and again and again and again. It occurred to me this week that that this is in some ways the appropriate cultural hour for preaching through Revelation. Because of how often Revelation appeals to Old Testament passages. I don't mean what you're likely to interpret me in, in meaning by that statement that this is the appropriate cultural hour. Everything right now in the entertainment industry is about drawing on your past experiences with entertainment and then recasting them now in order that you might be entertained by them, but that their message would communicate more powerfully because of your nostalgic remembrance of that mode of entertainment or type of entertainment from your past. Everything from Top Gun to Stranger Things is about appealing to your childhood experiences and entertainment because that speaks to us, right? There's a reason, parents, why you want your kids to enjoy the cartoons you enjoyed as a child. It's not just protecting them from indoctrination in some kind of way, although that's always a factor, right? You want to import into their childhood experience the sweet memories that you have of your own. There's a reason dads like to watch the movies of their childhood and read the books of their childhood with their sons and moms with their daughters. We want to bring that experience to bear in them. John is doing exactly the same thing by these references to the Old Testament. Because there's a certain nostalgia. There's a power. There's a resonance with these references that communicates to his people, to his congregation, to his audience in powerful, powerful ways. The problem is... 21st century audiences seldom have the kind of nostalgic attachment to the themes, images, and messages of the Old Testament that 1st century readers did. That's why we have preachers. There are a few other reasons, but that's one of the reasons why we have preachers. The same way that God delivered the people of Israel in the Egyptian exodus so too will he deliver his people in the present generation. This is the message of John's thinly veiled reference. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming. From the seven spirits before his throne. The seven spirits here is just a reference to the fullness of God's Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is referred to in three ways here. He's referred to as the faithful witness firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The first seems to me to be the most important of those descriptions. Jesus is described here as the faithful witness. Remember, the call of revelation is that we as the people of God would remain faithful witnesses. That marching if necessary headlong into the very teeth of death, we would lay down our lives declaring Jesus Christ is Lord. Here Jesus is set forth as the exemplar with regards to faithful witness. Remember that Jesus' status is ultimately achieved by his willingness to embrace the humiliation of execution by the cross, that God would exalt him in resurrection. Jesus goes the way of humiliation and ultimately, eternally, he is exalted to the right hand of God we're invited to follow after that pattern. This is precisely what Jesus means when he says, take up the cross and follow after me. I'll be asked, if I had a dollar for every time, if I get get up one buck for the next year, for every time someone asks me what my eschatology is, I just retire and go to the house, right? Sometimes people will We'll ask, and I'll say in response to that, what do you think Jesus' eschatology is? And I, I, because I know, I don't know if you know or not, but I know what Jesus' eschatology is. It's take up the cross and follow me. That's his view, right? The way the kingdom prevails is through faithful witness, embracing humiliation and even the prospect of death, confident that just as God has delivered in time past, he will deliver yet again. His son testifies to this reality. Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. The idea of firstborn here is not about chronology. It doesn't mean he was the first person to be raised. In fact, he was not. There are even people within Jesus' own ministry who were raised. Most famously, Lazarus, whom Jesus himself raised from the dead. The Greek term behind firstborn here is the same word from which we derive the English term prototype. He is the forerunner of those raised from the dead he is the prototype by which all others who will be raised from the dead will be raised from the dead the idea here does connote priority but he takes priority not based on the fact that he was the first person to be raised from the dead but because he is the most important person to be raised from the dead and every other resurrection is bound up in the victory achieved in his resurrection from the dead He's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. It might look like churches of Asia Minor that Domitian is in charge. And, and, And it might look like in our world that the leader of China or Russia or even the United States is in charge. But the reality is that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Can't you rest in that? I don't know why God does what he does sometimes I do it much different but at the same time I'm quite thankful I'm not God (laughs) Jesus is faithful witness and the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom priest to his God and father the glory and the dominion are his forever and ever amen Again, three descriptions of who Jesus is. His glory and worship and praise is paid to him in these verses. He's the one who loves us. Aren't you glad that God loves us? That rolls off the mouth a little sweeter when our hearts are heavy and hurting, doesn't it? There's just an added element of the soothing force of that kind of observation when it feels as though no one else loves us. Now, I, I'm kind of under the impression that for the seven churches of Asia Minor, that carried a little more resonance with them than it stands to with us in our comfort and affluence this morning, to know that Jesus loves us. And to tell the story of Karl, Karl Barth, the German theologian, being asked in something of a, a QA and a session with students he'd lecture to, what's the most profound theological truth that you've ever discovered, to which he answered Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so he loves us and he set us free from our sin by his blood one of the real treasures of the message of the gospel is that regardless of the nature of your addiction your proclivity towards sin your impulse to return as a dog to the vomit again and again and again by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't have to live the way you have lived anymore. He has set us free from our sin by his blood. He's made us a kingdom, priest to his God, a new kingdom. We're here bearing with the present kingdom, but our citizenship is in heaven. And the king of our kingdom has promised that one day he's gonna come to where we are and everything that has been so wrong, he will forever make right under his absolute authority. He's given us a sense of community within the body of Christ. One of the troubling phenomena in American church history, recent American church history, is the devaluing of the church experience. But you've got to know that when the temperature begins to turn itself up the way it has for the churches of Asia Minor, all of, all of those uh, preconceived notions about how unnecessary community can be fade away. And there's a drawing together of the people of God and a prioritization of community and fellowship and togetherness. Being together because there's a common enemy that's out to beset our faith, tear us asunder. To him belong the glory and the dominion forever. Verse 7, the Bible says, look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him and all the families of the earth will mourn over him. This is certain. Amen. There is a somewhat superficial message here, not in the sense that the message is superficial, but that it's laying atop the text doesn't require a tremendous amount of exposition for you to see, appreciate, or understand what John is communicating here. It is quite simple. Jesus is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the families of the earth will mourn in repentance and contrition that he is who he is, that they have conducted themselves even as they have. This is the message of Nahum, revisited again in a New Testament context. There is coming a day when Christ comes to cleanse and claim his church forever and to exact justice with absolute precision in all the earth but even within this straightforward message there is the veiled message of john's yet again use of old testament passages sort of mashing together here quotations from three different old testament texts. what you read in verse 7 is a combination of zechariah twelve ten, isaiah 19 and daniel 7 Now in Zechariah 12.10 and Isaiah 19, you find references to Jesus that are very similar to what you, you may know from Isaiah 53. There in Zechariah and Isaiah, he is the suffering servant. He's not much like perhaps the ideas that you might have about a coming Messiah even now. He's uncomely in appearance. People are repelled he suffers he is bruised for our iniquity he carries our sin upon himself there is the apparent appearance of uncleanness as a result of his bearing our sin he is a sufferer he is a servant he does not enjoy status there is no privilege attached to his position. Even as Messiah. He is in every sense of the word. A suffering servant. That's the Messiah. That Isaiah and Zechariah set forth. In their prophecies. But in Daniel 7. Also alluded to here in verse 7 of our text. He's the conquering king. Who subdues the kingdoms of this world. And tramples his enemies underfoot. He is conqueror. Now. Put yourself for just a moment, slide into the sandals of a believer 100 years before the birth of Jesus. How do you rectify this? How do you put this together in your mind? This is why I'm skeptical of those who speak with such confidence as to what the future holds in terms of the very details. There are some things we know confidently. Jesus is coming back. He will save the church forever, fully, and finally, and he will judge the wicked. That's about the extent of what we know. Jesus himself says he doesn't know the day or the hour, many of the ins and outs of how it will unfold. If Jesus doesn't know it, I'm quite confident you don't know it either. How would you have understood this contrasting explanation of who the Messiah is going to be? Suffering servant? Conquering king? What John is doing here in the mashup of those three passages is reflecting back on Jesus as the suffering servant. Who dies on the cross in our place, he bears the scars of our sin. Jesus would say in his earthly ministry, I came not to be served, but to serve. He would invite with such mercy, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest He makes his place not with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but with the sinners and the tax collectors and the harlots and the drunkards. He is the suffering servant. That in no way negates the fact that he is at the same time the conquering king. His earthly ministry serving to exemplify, to give expression The suffering service aspect of his character, but his second coming, an exhibition in what it means to say that God will come in exact judgment in absolute precision. Remember, John is writing to those who have suffered, those who have struggled in the same way that those of Judea in our Nahum series had struggled, struggled under the oppressive hand of the Assyrians. You can act overly spiritual if you'd like, but there is a sense of satisfaction that comes at knowing that one day God is coming and he will vindicate the blood of his people. Every act of persecution, every act of violence, every act of opposition, every reviling look, every ridiculing statement will one day be serviced in justice by the very God of heaven. He is coming with the clouds and indeed every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, all the families of the earth will mourn. And John notes, this is certain. Amen. Jesus says of himself in verse eight, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is, who was, who is coming, the Almighty. Just this addition at the end of that phrase that we looked at, or that statement we looked at, the one who is, who was, and who is coming, the Almighty, again, a way for the Old Testament to make reference to God, reminding the audience that he is the sovereign ruler of the world. Jesus is in charge. The faithful witness who is our Savior is Lord and not Caesar. So no matter what happens in your life, no matter how bad it gets for you, no matter how severe the threat might be, we are to take up the cross and follow after Jesus as faithful witnesses. One last word on Revelation and we'll wrap up. One of the challenges with a book like Revelation, completely removed from the mysterious nature of apocalyptic genre and symbols and images, is the fact that it's written to people who are suffering, people who are being persecuted, and, uh, and none of us are. There may be some minor inconveniences in our experience, and certainly our culture is moving in a direction that would suggest a strong likelihood of persecution in the very near future, something well beyond the minor inconveniences to scenarios in which you can't get a job or keep a job and may even be endangered in certain segments of our country, in certain geographic locations of of this nation. Be reminded that Jesus is in charge when those things unfold the way they do, but also take note that the book of Revelation has a word to say to an apathetic, indifferent, cold, and waxing, waxing cold and calloused church situation as well. What is addressed in chapters 2 and 3 of this book are established churches. Churches who have, in my terminology, institutionalized. You perhaps know what I intend by that. Churches that cease to be a movement for the advancement of the gospel and instead become self-serving institutions, concerned rather with their comforts, their preservation, and even at times prosperity as opposed to kingdom advancement. The book of Revelation ought to serve to folks like that and churches like that to be a grab you by the collar moment and shake you from your slumber and say, Don't you know that Jesus is our faithful witness and we are to persevere after that pattern? The end is near. Christ is coming. He is Lord. Caesar, Caesar is not witness until the end, whether it means your death are no more than waking up from your apathetic sleep to tell someone about the goodness of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Our faithful witness is deserving of all praise, glory, and honor. And he's pleased to receive it as we declare his name in all the earth. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, and these moments to reflect on these initial verses of Revelation. Help us, Lord, to hide your word away in our heart that we might not sin against you. Help us to be faithful witnesses to the message of the gospel, to tell others of the goodness of our Savior Jesus, how he bled and died in our place on the cross, how he rose again on the third day, seated at the right hand of God now and inviting us to trust and believe in him for salvation. Help us, Lord, to invite the world around us to taste and see that indeed he is good. We ask it in Jesus' name.